0: Read with me, please. Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary his betrothed who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Please have a seat as we pray. good hey, morning again. Take a few minutes this morning and Think about Jesus. You probably know this already, but I'm just going to mention it as a reminder. Christ brings hope. That's kind of the idea. Jesus comes to bring hope. Um, What's kind of interesting, though, about Jesus is the way he does it. It's not a big secret that Jesus intends to bring hope. It's just the way that he did it is... Well, it's not just interesting, it's unusual, I might suggest. Um, Jesus, God, creator of the universe, sustainer of the universe, always has been, always will be. And when he is born, he doesn't really make a big grand entrance. There's no big to-do. He's just sort of born in a backwater town with very little uh, fanfare, save for the angels and the shepherds. But he intends to bring hope nonetheless. And I think... And we're going to see here in a minute, that's the point. Is he wants us to have hope. He wants us to experience hope. But the hope that Jesus offers, I'm going to maybe put it this way, if you don't mind. It's quiet hope. Quiet hope. But actually, this is the kind of hope that we need. And I want us to see why am looking at a couple of different scriptures about Jesus. Christ comes to bring hope, but he's coming in a particular way to bring us a particular kind of hope. And this kind of hope is a quiet hope. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus' birth is anticipated long before he was born. In fact, one of the prophets of the Old Testament, a guy named Isaiah, wrote about Jesus' birth hundreds of years before his birth occurred. This is in Isaiah 53. You can turn there if you want. If you're using one of the black Bibles in the chairs around you, you'll find them under the chairs Isaiah 53 is on page 613. I don't know if Isaiah 53 is on page 613 of your Bible. If it is, that's kind of cool. But this is what Isaiah 53 verses 2 and 3 have to say about Jesus' quiet hope. In describing Jesus' birth, I might describe it this way from Isaiah 53. We learn about Jesus and the majesty of insignificance quiet hope from Christ, the majesty of insignificance. Listen to what the prophet said about Jesus who was going to be born hundreds of years later. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we would look at him. He had no beauty that we would desire him. In fact, it says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The majesty of insignificance. Jesus demonstrates this quiet hope he offers through the majesty of insignificance. Now, Winston Churchill was talking about public speaking and put together, putting together speeches, and he said this, good speeches are marked by their lack of, of long and complicated words. Good speeches ought not to have any long and technical and complicated words. In fact, he would say a good speech is one that only contains words that nearly everybody could understand. So during the war effort, they were talking a lot about military equipment and this sort of thing, and there was discussion about prefabricated bridges and ships and aircraft. Well, he never once would use the word prefabricated He always used ready-made because he knew that would be a lot more understandable to most uh, people because Churchill understood the majesty of a good speech is not whether or not it was impressive, it was whether or not it was understood. And so he was understanding the majesty of insignificance. And so Isaiah is talking about Jesus, who is yet to come hundreds of years later, and he's explaining that this Messiah will be the hero of Israel, the one hero that Israel has been looking forward to for hundreds, if not thousands of years, the one hero that all of mankind has been looking forward to. But his description of this Messiah, of this hero, is despised, rejected, sorrows, grief. Now, as Americans, what we like to do, okay, that's okay. He gets his start in a backwater hick town, but this is a great rags-to-riches story, isn't it? He's going to pull himself up by his bootstraps and make something of himself. He's going to pay for college by working part-time at McDonald's, whatever it might be. Isaiah wants us to understand this is not a rags-to-riches story. This is a rags-to-rags story. This is a story of one who came in insignificance and remained in insignificance that we who are insignificant might partake of his righteousness. In fact, what we discover from Isaiah is not that he's trying to get out of his insignificance. We discover Christ's majesty is best seen in the fact that he was despised and unesteemed. Isaiah 53 verses 4, 5, and 6. I'm just going to read them. If you're still there, you can follow along. Isaiah tells us why the Messiah will be like this. He says this, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With His wounds, we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, each one have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on, who? Him, the rebellion of everyone. His majesty wasn't disguised in insignificance. The problem is, we are blind to the majesty he reveals in his insignificance. Why is that? Because we want a hero. We all love heroes. We want the guy we can follow, the person we can be inspired by, the one who is above us all that will inspire us to try and be above it all, the one who will show us you can do it. The story is told in the Old Testament about a guy who demonstrates this kind of desire. It's a guy named Naaman. His story is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 5. Again, if you're using the black Bibles and the chairs around us, that's on page 311 naaman was a big time hero big time military hero for syria Ooh, that's what we mean, Syria. i mean normally when you say syria and you're reading the bible the darth vader song should play in the back of your head big time and what but he wakes up one day i mean this guy is huge he, he is you know just one or two steps under the leader of syria ben Haddad. And he wakes up one morning and discovers he has leprosy. And he has a servant girl in his home who is Jewish from Israel. And she tells Naaman, hey, guess what? If you go to Israel, there's a prophet there and he can heal you. That seems good to Naaman. So he one thing leads to another. Anyway, he finds himself at the home of Elisha the prophet. And he is going to ask Elisha to heal him. So Naaman came, this is verse 9 of 2 Kings chapter 5, he came with his horses and his chariot and he stood at the door of Elisha's house, he had horses and he had a whole team and he had all kinds of money he was going to pay the prophet and he sent for the prophet and guess what the prophet did? I'm busy. Wouldn't even get up. He sends his messenger, his servant Gehazi, he says, go tell him to wash in the Jordan River, that will take care of it. I'm not even getting up. Not impressed, Naaman. So the, prophet, the messenger goes out and then he says to him, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. Now who's been in the Jordan River? Anyone? Would you call that a clean river? No. It smells like catfish. I'm not, that's not a negative. It's just, it's, it's just not a clean river. And so Naaman had the same thought. That's, I'm going to need to get clean after getting in that river. He gets angry. Naaman got angry. He said, behold, I thought surely he'd come out and he'd stand up and call on the name of the Lord, maybe wave his hand over the leprosy and say some incantation. There's rivers in Syria that are better than this one. Why did I come all this way to to get in this river? And he begins to storm off. And his servants talk some sense into him and say, Naaman, Naaman, no, listen. He he said, just get in the river. Simmer down, bro. I mean, that's not in the Hebrew, but very close to that. See, what Naaman said, if the prophet would have come out and said, Naaman, I will heal you. If you will go to that city over there who has been taken over by our enemies and conquer that city so that Israel can have it back again, then I'll heal you. What would have Naaman said? Oh, I'm on it. That's right in my wheelhouse. The prophet did the worst thing this guy ever wanted. He said, no, it's free. Just dip in the Jordan River. No cost, nothing. It talks sense into him. Naaman goes into the river, takes a bath, comes out and he is healed. He goes to Elisha the prophet and says, you can have all of my treasure, and Elisha says, I don't want any of your stuff. You don't get to buy this. This is free. Now see, Naaman is just like you and me. We want a Messiah, yes, we want an awesome Messiah. We want a home run hitting, slam dunking Messiah. And Jesus comes in the majesty of insignificance. And if we're not careful, we'll miss it. In our search for a hero, we'll miss the one we actually need. What we discover about Jesus the insignificant is that it gives us good news. This means Jesus saves the lowly. Ever felt insignificant in your life? Then you've got the hero you need. The good news is because of Jesus' quiet hope for us and the majesty of the insignificant, Jesus saves the lowly. However, this is not good news for you if you don't think you're lowly. Let me rephrase that. If you don't understand you're lowly, you will want a hero as awesome as you are, and you'll miss him. Quiet hope, the majesty of insignificance. Let's flip over to the passage that Pat read for us in Luke. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, 1 through 7, this account, this record of the birth of Christ. In the Bible's from the chairs, uh, it's on page 857. And we discover here some interesting things about the birth of Christ. If before we may be noted from Isaiah, the majesty of the insignificant, what we see here is the beauty of disrespect the beauty of disrespect. Look how it starts. In those days, a decree went out from, and you have to say it this way, Caesar Augustus, Mr. Fancy Pants. The world should be registered. He wakes up one morning, you know what, register the world, and it does. This was in the registration of when Quirinius was governor. You know, the king of Syria, one of Caesar's little underlings. Hey, Quirinius, Cold glass of water, please. Yes, sir. So we we have here this contrast between these powerful and impressive Roman leaders, this unstoppable military bureaucracy, and this baby born in the animal shelter. Prisoners were talking to each other in jail, and they were plotting their escape. This jail they were trying to escape from was impossible those escape. the only way you leave this jail was in a coffin, but they had figured something out. The guards only visit their doors once a day to, to drop the food off another time once per day to pick up the waste bucket. Yeah, that kind of waste. And then once a year they show up for your beating. You get a beating every year. So one prisoner says the other one, we have the advantage. Why? Because, uh, excuse me, I misspoke. Neglect becomes our ally. Because we are neglected, We are left to our own devices for most of the time. And what we read here in Luke chapter 2 is Caesar Augustus commanding all of the world to do what he wants, arrogantly neglecting the fact that the king of the universe has been born under his watch. This is a beautiful story. I mean, Mary and Joseph traveling from Nazareth down to um, Bethlehem, a 90-mile or maybe even a 100-mile journey if you count the turns in the road. It's an uphill journey even though they're heading south. As it turns out, you can go uphill while going south. It's hard to get my head around that, but apparently you can. When they get there, again, we need to be careful not to really throw the innkeeper under the bus. I know everybody thinks the innkeeper is the worst guy in the entire Bible. He's not. All it's saying is when they got there, the inn was full and they were stuck in the normal place that they would say where the caravan would stay. But that it wouldn't be a suitable place to give birth to a baby, but there was no place for them in the inn. So she gives birth to, baby, to the baby Jesus out in, where the animals are kept, and she wraps them in the claws that she has, and when he's sleeping, there's nowhere to lay him, so she puts him in the feeding trough. It's the right shape and everything. There was no place for them. God with us And what what Luke is trying to do here is to contrast that with Caesar Augustus. If he didn't care about Caesar, he wouldn't have mentioned him. He's saying, look where God is born. Completely ignored. Completely off the radar. And Caesar Augustus, though, the world comes to attention as soon as he opens his mouth. And what we learn from there is beauty in the fact that Jesus was disrespected in his arrival. Caesar should have left his throne and scurried to Bethlehem as fast as he could to pay homage to the leader of the world and the universe. God with us, the beauty of being disrespected. I think of this, I know it's because my, my brain is weird, I'm getting it looked at. The classic basketball movie Hoosiers, you've seen it? I mentioned sometimes movies I've seen, I'm realizing I'm dating myself. Um... So it's the, the last scene of the movie. The final shot is coming down. This is funny, because some of the guys are tearing up. You could see them. <laughs> Talk about, who's like, oh, I love that scene. <laughs> so it's the final shot of the game. You have got to make the shot to win. And the coach decides, Gene Hackman, we're going to, Jimmy, the star ball player, it, he normally would take the shot, because he never misses, but they're going to use a, a distraction. Everybody's going to think Jimmy's going to shoot it, so we'll have this other guy shoot it. So you shoot it, and it'll be a distraction. And all the guys on the team go, oh, no, really? okay. And the coach's like, what, what's wrong, guys? What's wrong? And Jimmy only says three words. You Remember, it's my favorite line in the whole film, besides don't like, get caught watching the paint dry. My second favorite line. Jimmy says, and Jimmy doesn't say anything. Remember Jimmy? He's just totally quiet. I'll make it. That's all he says. He says to his coach, confident. No, I'll make it. It's all Gene Hackman needed to hear. Okay, Jimmy's shooting the ball. In this quietness, in his strength, in the confidence. He doesn't need confidence to be bestowed upon him. His confidence is coming from his inner assurance. And the same is true for Christ. There's beauty in the fact he does not need respect to be respected. He already has it. He is God. He comes to us humbly because he doesn't require our respect in order to be majestic. He doesn't require our respect in order to have beauty. He already has all of the respect and glory and power he will ever need. And in the quietness of that strength, he can then come humbly. And we can, restill, we can see it as beauty. Do you think if Caesar would have showed up in Bethlehem, there would have been room in the end? A spot? He could have sat down. Jesus doesn't need a room in the inn because he has already has everything he will ever need. When Jesus came, his desire was not to impress anyone. He has no need to be impressive. There's beauty in the disrespect he bore. Maybe we could ask that question of ourselves. Do you need Jesus to impress you? I'm going to let you in on a secret. He's not trying because He doesn't need to impress you. There isn't some unseated desire like He stays awake at night, oh, I think they might not like me. He has everything He needs in Himself, He is God Himself. The issue is not that he needs to impress us. The issue is the fact that when we are unimpressed by Jesus, it means there's something wrong with our eyes. Because when we're unimpressed by God in the flesh, it means we have missed him. There is beauty in the fact that he was disrespected because he did not need to come here to be affirmed. He came here merely to serve us with his servanthood. Quiet hope. There's beauty in his disrespectedness. Quiet hope. Majesty of insignificance, the beauty of disrespect. But I want us to make one thing perfectly clear. Just because Jesus came insignificantly and came disrespectedly, I don't know if that's a word, but it is now, it does not mean he came without power. There was power in his humility. Let's turn it over to Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18, that's page 807 of the church Bibles. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we're going to see Christ's humility, but we're going to see it exemplified, in this case, by a man named Joseph. I'm going to read Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Uh, it's not terribly long, but follow along with me. It's a passage I'm sure you're familiar with. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, that means engaged, to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. In those days, once you were engaged, if you were to break off the engagement, you had to do it very officially. Verse 20, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary as his wife, but he did not know her until uh, she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, the power of humility in quiet hope. Now, when you read the little we have in the Bible about Joseph, I think one thing stands out above all others. The Bible doesn't record a single word Joseph ever said. I looked. I couldn't find one. If you find one, let me know. We are never told anything Joseph said. The only thing we're told is the things that Joseph does and the things Joseph believes. Reminds me another guy of a movie, and I hesitate to share this movie, um, Anne of Green Gables. (laughs) Go easy. Some of the guys are going, oh, I'd never watch that. There's a guy in Anne of Green Gables, Matthew Cuthbert. I love Matthew. He's probably my favorite character in Anne of Green Gables. And yes, I have a favorite character in Anne of Green Gables. It's a good movie. I see, some of the guys are tearing up more than that, than Hoosiers. Okay. <laughs> Got something in my eye. It's fine. So Matthew cuthbert he doesn't say much in the whole film, does he? He says very little. He sort of quietly puts up with his sister's rantings. But he's, he's a strong guy. In fact, he decides, even against his sister's wishes, to go into town and buy Anne a dress with puffy sleeves because that's what she wanted. A dress with puffy sleeves. I mean, it's what I've always wanted. No. <laughs> I not know. It was all the things. So he goes and buys her a dress with puffy sleeves and gives it to her even though uh, Matthew's sister uh, opposed this purchase. Later on, of course, she agreed it was the right thing to do. But here's Matthew Cuthbert. Quiet, humble but a deep water, a deep sea of strength. I don't know why, but when I read about Joseph in Matthew, this is what I perceive. He doesn't need to say a lot, because what he does says everything he needs to say. He he doesn't speak what is on his mind. He does what ought to be done. And there is power in the humble execution of, of what he believes is true. So although Mary was engaged to him, which meant they couldn't come together physically, she became pregnant, so he did the math. That means she was with another man. And the Bible describes Joseph as a just man. It could be translated either just or righteous. So what he understood was, based on his conviction, he couldn't marry her because she wasn't faithful to him. But he said in his own mind, being a righteous man, he was unwilling to put her to shame. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Now, think of the people you know. You say, that is a righteous person. That is a just person. That is a person with a high moral compass. That is a person with, uh, as as one pastor says, bone-deep integrity. We respect and love all of those things, but generally what we associate with folks who have a high moral integrity and deep-seated convictions is also a willingness of those individuals to let us know how we don't measure up to them. Now, I'm sure you don't know anybody in your family that's like that. Maybe I should say this way. If you don't know anybody in your family who, who is like that, you're probably that person. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed. It would have been weird if you didn't. But what's interesting about Joseph is the righteousness he has is very much married to his unwillingness to put her to shame. See, in our mind, one who is self-righteous is one who is very willing, in fact, maybe looking forward to putting you to shame. Oh, you really, you did it that way. No, that's fine. I mean, I wouldn't have done it that way. But that wasn't Joseph. It says because of his righteousness, he was unwilling to put her to shame. What we might normally think is because of his righteousness, he took out a full page ad in the paper to put her to shame. But because of his righteousness, he was unwilling to put her to shame. He did as the angel commanded, he married her. So what happens to his reputation? Now I wish things were different then, Maybe even different now. But the fact is, there's no way he could have let everybody in town know that her baby was from God. There is going to be one or two town busybodies. You hear about Mary and Joseph? She's easy. That won't last long. He's going to have in the back of his mind his whole life. It won't last. She'll go out on him again at some point. You think that wasn't said? You think their town somehow was the one town in all of human history that didn't have town busybodies? (laughs) So Joseph, in his righteousness, was unwilling to have her take shame. What did that mean for him? That means he received it. The power of humble grace as exemplified by Joseph. Look what the angel says to Joseph in verse 21 of Matthew 1. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. And then again, at the end of the chapter, the last sentence of verse 25, uh, something that's easily overlooked but unimaginable in in its honor. He called his name Jesus, the Savior of the world who came to save sinners, from their shame. Joseph, the one man, the one man who had the privilege of bestowing the title of Savior upon God Himself. I mean, can you imagine? We've been calling him Jesus ever since. Because that's his name. Because Joseph understood what was going on, and he did what was right in humble obedience. He was not willing to to put Mary to shame because he was willing to take shame on himself. Does that sound like anybody to you? Let me point out a couple of stories by closing. In John chapter 8, Jesus is in the temple and the religious leaders, boo. They bring a woman to him caught in adultery. I mean, how abhorrent. And they say, what should be do to her, Jesus? The law says we should stone her to death. And what does Jesus say to them? Whoever of you is without sin may cast the first stone. So which of them threw a stone? Well, none could because they were all adulterers and he knew it. If they hadn't done it, they had thought about doing it. If they hadn't thought about doing it, no, they had. Who had the right to throw the stone. But what did he say? He who is without sin, who had the right to throw a stone? And did he? He didn't. Because he did not come to put her to shame. He came to bear it for her. And he called her. He said, go. Sin no more. John chapter 4. Jesus is walking through Samaria. (gasps) You have to say that when you're reading. What? What? And he sits down to get a drink of water and he asks a Samaritan woman, what do you do? I'm teaching you how to read your Bible. You've got you to be involved in your Bible here. What? Talking to a Samaritan woman? And he says, can you get me a drink? And she says, mm, it's kind of weird, bro. And he says to her, listen, I can offer you water and you will never thirst again. She said, well, that sounds good. He says, yeah, go get your husband, and and I'll talk to him about it, too. That's when it got tense. He goes, oh, you're not married, and the man you're with is not your husband, and the previous four weren't either. Have you read that passage? What does he say then? Oh, never mind about the living water. I didn't know you were bad. Did he say that? He said, in the parched desert of your soul looking for meaning, In any way you can find it, I have brought it. Do you want it? You don't have to be shamed because I will take it for you, Jesus said. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is just. He has a high moral compass. In spite of that, he does not want to put us to shame. In fact, he wants to bear it. In fact, we might even ask the question, how could he be both righteous and not put us to shame? Because we've done some pretty bad stuff, haven't we? 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is what it says about him. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what, what the Bible teaches us is Jesus, in humble grace says I don't want you to have any shame but I am just and I am righteous so what I'm going to do is I'm going to die on the cross, I will take all of the shame for you all of the shame for all of the things you've ever done and I will pay for it and what I will then do is take all of my righteousness and give it to you and we in that moment are like Naaman the Syrian general, okay what do I have to pay? No, I mean, there's got to be a catch, right? No. You say, I won't put you to shame. The only way for this to work is for me to take your shame and for me to give you all of my righteousness. And it's just a free deal if you'll trust me. And we couldn't have it if there wasn't power in this humiliation. Philippians 2 says it this way. Jesus, who was God emptied himself and became a servant being born as a man and he humbled himself and become became obedient to death he goes on he says no 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 not just death death on a cross the most humiliating kind of death therefore god has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name at his name Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was humiliated and shamed that we might receive his righteousness and glory. There is power in his humility. There is power through his humility. Quiet hope. Three things, and we'll close with this. The majesty of insignificance. Christ's birth is not intended to inspire us to be humble and lowly. I don't want you to leave here inspired to be humble and lowly. What Christ's birth is intended to do is show us we already are. You don't need to somehow get your head around the idea. You're already there. You just need to believe what God actually says about us. We are humble and lowly. And the fact is, that is really good because he came to save the humble and lowly. In fact, the high and lifted up will miss his message completely. Second thing, the beauty of his disrespect, the beauty of Christ's birth is in fact not found in the fact that it is glorious, even though it is. The beauty of Christ's birth is found in his smallness. The fact that he doesn't need to earn respect, he already has it. Might I suggest we find more strength in Christ when we finally give up our need to be impressive? Maybe our Christian life, the struggle will fall away just a bit if we decide we don't have to be the gold star Christian. Maybe we can let go of the need to be impressive and just rest in the humble strength of our Savior. Finally, the power of his humility, the power of Christ's birth is found not in the fact that it was miraculous, although it was, but the power of Christ's birth is most profoundly seen in its humility because mankind is saved by his mercy. Mankind is saved by the fact that he was unwilling to put us to shame. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine, in all of the despicable things you and I have done or thought about doing, he says, I am unwilling to put you to shame. Because I want to be shame for you. I can't say it any more clearly. If you can trust him, your shame will be gone. Not mostly gone, not kind of gone, not a work in progress. Your shame will be gone because he will take it for you. Because of his strength, not yours. Because of his love, not your love. And because of his righteousness. Quiet hope. The majesty of insignificance, the beauty of disrespect, the power of humility.